This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams, and I'm joined as always by David Hughes. Dave, how's things, mate? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. I'm uh, not being yeah, a little bit Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I think everybody is, aren't they? Um, but doing okay, definitely not COVID. We just had that conversation before, before we've come on here. Definitely not. Um, but yeah, a little bit iffy. Also, being kind of relegated back to the office. Uh, I was quite enjoying life down in the kitchen near the coffee machine, but back in the office today. So, um, that's a little bit of a disappointment as well. But beyond that, all good, mate. Yeah, well, I've, I'm, I've been carrying a little bit of sickness myself, haven't I? So maybe you've caught it off me over the podcast. I'm not sure if that's possible. But, uh, you know... It's... Well, it could have been in London, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah. yeah. Speaking of London, that is, uh, we're going to speak about that a little bit first. Uh, because we've had a few, I've had a few messages, people who want to know a bit more and things. So we're going to get through that. We have to finish the Q&A from last week. We also have to speak about Watford and we have to speak about Atletico Madrid. So we've got a favour to get through this week, despite both of us being slightly under the weather, we're shouldering the workloads still. Um, but yeah, we'll start with London, mate. Um, obviously, we attended the Statsbomb Conference and Liverpool's Ian Graham, who is the club's director of research and pretty much the man behind Liverpool's numbers, Liverpool's data analytics and things like that, gave a talk. Uh, me and David attended with Paul Ghost, Liverpool Echoes correspondent. Um and it was it was interesting, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, certainly. I you know, I have to say, I'm not just saying it because because we're on this show, because uh, this is the conversations I've had with yourself, with Ghosty, uh others since I've come back. I thought uh, I thought Ian Graham on the day was the best uh in terms of the the talk that he gave, the most interesting. Um, I'm not for, for any sort of complex reason, you know. I just thought he delivered his talk really well. Um, it was a good start to the day. They, they often tend to be, I say often, you know, there's, there's only been, I think, one before, certainly one previously that we've been to, but you know, they, they are always good days. Um, but I thought he was really interesting. It was, it was cool to see the likes of uh, Michael Edwards there as well. Uh, you know, at one point we found ourselves sitting directly behind them, didn't we? Um, the whole team, which was which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it was a good, it was a good day, and and you know, as I said, it, there was a lot of lot of insight gained from 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 his talk in particular. Yeah, yeah, there was a fair few there. Um, Victor Orta, who is Leeds United's sporting director, was there. The head of analytics at Leicester City was there. Head of sports trying to Ajax was there, and as you said, we 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 were sat for for most of the day. I would say directly behind Michael Edwards to the extent that I could have put my hand on his shoulder and asked him who Liverpool was signing. But after the game, still that. Yeah, it would have been a little um, bit weird, like. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Julian Ward was there as well, who who is replacing Edwards in the future. Um. And yeah, I just I thought Graham's talk in particular was maybe it's because I'm a Liverpool fan, but I found it very, very enticing to, the things he said and stuff like that. And obviously, every every topic on, throughout the day had its own subject matter. Um, 
And I, I found it really appropriate that Graham just opted to talk about what he quite clearly deemed to be the most important thing associated with a football club, with that being recruitment. He just spoke about recruitment from start to finish, how analytics can help that. Um, and I have just a few little nuggets that I, that I thought were interesting. He, he flagged, for example, um, why a player tends to fail. He said 50% of transfers fail, usually. Got up a little scattergraph of something like that. Every transfer in the Premier League worth over 10 million for the past five years or so, when it was completely scattered all over the place to show success rates, isn't really associated with with transfer fee price and things like that. And some of the reasons behind why a player might fail at a club, he listed as, you know, a current player is better than a new player. The player is not as good as first thought. The player doesn't fit the style of the team. Players played out of position. Manager doesn't rate the player. The player has fitness issues and the player has personal issues. All of those boxes can influence things. And obviously what I found what I found interesting at the time, Dave, was he said if you're ninety percent sure that a player has no fitness issues, and if you're ninety percent sure that a player has no personal issues. Then across both of those boxes combined, you can only be eighty-one percent sure if you obviously multiply them together. And he said, if you do that across all of those boxes that I've just listed, ninety percent sure across all of those boxes, you can only really be forty-eight percent sure that the player is going to be a success. Really, which uh, I thought was a, a strange way of putting it, really, but I, I did find it interesting when he said it. Yeah, you know. It, it... That that stood out to me as well, and it reminded me of something to do with um, with set pieces, um, which you know I'm sure they'll be aware of. But uh, you know, talking about kind of um, short corners and and passing sequences leading to a shot in in a uh, in a corner situation, and the reason I, I compared the two is because um, if you kind of think of a a short pass having about a 90% success rate or, you know, 90% chance of finding its target. Um, then you do a, a, a add another pass with a similar success rate within the sequence. Suddenly that the, it, it, it brings down the, the chance of that pass reaching its target uh, another 10%. And then if you put another pass on there, it becomes less. And suddenly what you find is you end up kind of creating these situations where you yeah, the best way I can describe it is, as he's talked about, minimising or reducing your prospects prospects of success because of all these different factors. And the re- I just tied in with set pieces because I remember doing a set piece course where that was pointed pointed out to me quite early on that um, the more you more passes you add to like a corner sequence, um, the less chance of actually getting a shot off at the end. And although it's com- two completely different factors of the game, that straight away kind of hit a hit struck a chord with me where I thought, yeah, you, you can translate that into something like this, like recruitment, where all these different factors, you know, do slowly chip away the prospects of success. Um and the way he the way he kind of just translated that message uh, across was really interesting. And it did definitely make me uh, make me think about not just transfers, not just things like, you know, set pieces, just all aspects of the game, how these little ten percent multiply multiply to impact uh, success rate on on what different aspects of the game. Yeah, I mean, there was a part when he when he was flagging players, and he he was kind of highlighting how each player can can influence a team 
but strictly in terms of a points total. Um, rather than Nels just talking about a points total and your, your goal difference specifically, that's kind of a good way of how to view a player's impact. How much does he impact your goal difference, basically? And you know, he said uh, some players will have a negative impact on your goal difference. Some players will have a positive impact on your goal difference. Say, for example, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh here, but... <laughs> As I guess, I would say Simon Mignolet had generally probably a negative impact on Liverpool's goal difference. Alison Becker, I would say, is total opposite. That's a guess. That's nothing to do with his talk. But I suppose that's what I'm getting at. He, he just generally said that if you replace a, a, a 30th percentile player with a 70th percentile player, it's way in your squad. It's worth about two points per season. Um, obviously, the the ninety ninth percentile players will be like the likes of Messi and players like this. And so, obviously, if you consider what a seventieth percentile player might look like and what a thirtieth percentile player might look like, they're not bad players by any means. They're just kind of, you know, I suppose you're going from middle of the road to slightly above middle of the road, um, and it's it's giving you about two points per season, um. Which I think does highlight why Liverpool maybe don't go and do loads of business all the time, especially not now that the squad's so strong. Because in terms of what you're adding in terms of points, you can't really do that much unless you sign on these top elite talent, like the Thiago and players like this and Diogo Jota. And he said if you can if you can move from a fifteenth percentile player to an eighty fifth percentile player, which is maybe what Liverpool might have done with the goalkeeping department. He said that can be worth up to five, uh, around five points, I think he said. Um, which is why Liverpool probably deemed deemed Alisson Becker to be worth, you know, the world, the record-breaking amount, I think it was at the time, Dave. Yeah, it was. And, you know, those, those kind of points uh, really hammer home how, how small these margins are and probably shed some light to people that you know the impact of transfers and I make this point because it's something we've said on the podcast in the past specifically when we talked about Liverpool's lack of business um, the impact of transfers can often be overestimated overvalued and you know you, you're talking about some real top talents there you know it, it really kind of touching the brackets of the elite of the elite and you know the difference of the points tally isn't really as much as many people would expect. Um, so then that's when you're weighing up. Think the outlay of bringing those players in. You know, is it is it really worth it? Especially some of the fees that get talked about now for the, the top top talents. Um, so yeah, again, it was just it was just really interesting, and I think that will, that in particular maybe for people listening or watching now that'll be a little bit of an eye opener in terms of the actual. Um, you know, impact on on a points return and how it's probably a lot smaller than people would would anticipate, even if you're bringing in real, really good players. I think it probably highlights as well how the the majority of the difference that you can make in terms of recruitment will will probably happen in the early years when you've got those major upgrades to make, and you and you can you can you can go from like. A player who is relatively average or whatever to, to a Mo Salah, and you can go from a, a Carrius or a Minulay to Allison, 
and you can go from a, a Ragnar Clavon to a Van Dyke. You know, they're major points changes them. Um, obviously, Liverpool have now reached the point where the majority of the squad's elite, really. So those, it's it's difficult to find those improvements now. Difficult to find those those players who will keep impacting your points total because you've 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 almost maxed out really. Um, mm. So the, because the pool gets smaller, doesn't it? And it's the, the it almost feels like the the step up becomes becomes harder to make and the pool becomes small in which the players you can use to do it, um, which is why Liverpool probably have quite a headache now. Like Liverpool could go out and, and buy players every summer quite easily, but having enough to to really give them the gains that they need um, for the outlay that they'd be, you know, making, it just, it just doesn't seem worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, one of the overwhelming things I got from it, Dave, was, was that Liverpool are in good hands. I think that's probably a good way of putting it. And any player who does come to Anfield has been absolutely scrutinised to the nth degree, um, which is not a bad thing. You know, I think it's, it makes Liverpool capable of making those signs above the 50% success rate. Um, so, yeah, that's... I think we'll leave it there talking about that. Um, but those who have signed up to the newsletter, uh, the, he spoke about Firmino in particular. Um, he also spoke about Suarez. I'm not sure if I'll mention the Suarez thing, but... He spoke about Firmino, and I think I'm going to send out roughly what he said on Firmino using the newsletter. So, people who've signed up to the newsletter, you can expect that on Thursday. People who haven't signed up to the newsletter, do sign up. You know, come to my Twitter at Distance Covered for the link or whatever, and uh, you'll get down your in, in your inbox. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to the Q and A, Dave. So yeah. I'll let you go first. I'll let you start. Um, <coughs> after obviously after restart where we were up to last week. Yeah, Mikey Ware. Um, it's quite a quite a convenient question. This based on what we were just discussing. Uh, I think Liverpool are planning to sign Kylian Mbappe next summer, but how good is he actually? You get very different views from uh, he's better than Messi to he's overrated. Um, I mean, to answer that initial question, he's a you know he's a phenomenal talent. He's a fantastic player. Um, do I think Liverpool are actually going to sign him? And I'll be honest, I, I I don't. Um, and reason being, if you kind of consider everything that's just been discussed, you know, I look at Mbappe and think, in my opinion, and I could be I could be proven wrong, but in my opinion, Mbappe probably comes in and an absolute best case performs at a level maybe on par with Salah. But I also think there's a a pretty big risk or chance that he might not. Certainly initially. Um, you know, you don't have to look at Sancho so far. United obviously were very early, so don't want to be too critical. I'm sure he will come good, but he's he's not really had any impact. Um, and there's a lot of money paid there, and I don't think anybody would have anticipated that. Try and think of another good example. Uh Pepe at Arsenal. Okay, I think Mbappe's ceiling is much higher than Nicholas Pepe's, but you know, a lot of money paid, uh underlying numbers look like they'd back up having a really positive impact at the new clubs and, and and certainly in Pepe's case it's it's never really exploded. Um so <clears throat> I'm looking at Mbappe and you think, yeah, okay, you're not paying for the transfer fee. But given the demand for his signature, <laughs> you know, what what salary are you looking at per week there? I mean, I'd guess what, three hundred, four hundred could be could be more. You know, I am just guessing. Um but you 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 you've got a huge outlay there. Um and then 
if he comes in on that, you're looking at the agents from the likes of Mohamed Salah, you know, other big names, Van Dijk maybe. Uh, do they then start pushing for more as a little bit of a domino effect across the squads? You know, as we've just been discussing, how many points uh, do those wages actually add to this Liverpool side? Now, I think he would definitely have a positive impact on the goal difference because the player he is, but would it be enough to to basically um, warrant the fee on wages and also the potential issues it could co- cause within the squad with other players? You know, for those, those reasons, I uh, I'm just inclined to think that it probably wouldn't happen next next year, um, and it probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for Liverpool if it never. Yeah, so I've got a question from Arthur P, and he says there was a lot of talk before the Manchester City game about their lack of a genuine centre forward. Yeah, genuine centre forward. Um, couldn't the same be said of Liverpool? Um, and then he said, "Is there a case both teams would benefit from an out and out and out first class striker?" I'm thinking a Kane or a Haaland. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think Liverpool have operated for quite a few years now without an actual striker. Um, and I don't think it's... I don't think Liverpool have encountered many issues, really. Because I think the, the system is kind of shaped specifically for forwards, forward-type players, you know, wide forwards to get, to get goals. And the forwards that Liverpool have signed, they're not kind of like... I mean, they are obviously, but they're not. They're not creative forwards, are they? They're not creative. They're, they're very much the the scoring type of forwards. So Liverpool have never really struggled for goals. And I think if any, if if Liverpool, if you look at Liverpool and look at City, I think out of those two, I think I would suggest City a lot more need a, a fixed striker than Liverpool do. But having said that, I do think Liverpool are moving towards a period where obviously Firmino's getting on and stuff and. I wouldn't put it past Liverpool to make that move for to finally f- sign the first striker under Klopp, you know, <laughs> six years after he's arrived. Um, but I've got another question in a minute where I can maybe go into a little bit more detail on that, so I'll leave that one there. But, yeah, I think, um, I think I have to make some good points there. Question you know, from Steve Roberts. Um <laughs> If anyone wonders, by the way, I've got. I'm just trying not to cough over Josh when I'm, uh, you know, when I, when he's speaking. So I've been turning my mic off, um, but my uh, my trick is now being exposed. Um, it wouldn't be a normal show, would it? If one of us left left to ourselves on on mute at least one time. I mean, it's it's such a 2021 uh, kind of issue, isn't it? You know, just yes, it is. used to it now. Anyway, we could cut it out, but let's just leave it in. Um, Steve Roberts, why have we persisted with recruiting expensive sick notes such as Cater, Thiago, Oxley Chamberlain, Matip, and to a lesser extent, Jota and Canate? I think it's, to be honest, Steve, I think it's funny that you say to a lesser extent Canate because probably there's a case to be made out of the names that you mentioned there. He's the one who has the kind of more um, reasonable or more arguable case to, to have a, a bad in injury record because you know look if you look at Cater before he came he didn't really have this this profile being a player that consistently seemed to break down you know he was if I remember correctly I haven't looked in a while but he was he was certainly in around 30 appearances per season when he was at Salzburg and then and then Leipzig um 
Thiago has been a little hit and miss, fair enough. Uh, Oxley Chamber, I don't, I don't think he had a huge uh, injury problem before he came. Certainly, I can't remember. Uh, I'm having major issues. Matip, okay. Uh, same as Jota. I think what's happened is the it's a bit of a mixed bag here. First and foremost, we're looking at about you know five or six players over the, a three or four year spell. Um, and Liverpool kind of recruited a, a fair, fair few names in that time. So I'd say we're kind of picking up the, the worst examples there to, to fit the narrative a little bit. Um, Keita, yeah, Keita's just a very strange one. I don't know what's happening with that. Thiago, mm, Oxley chamberlain You look at Oxley chamberlain you think, you know, he had, he's, he's never really been the same since he suffered really, you know, was it one, one knee injury or two he had, Josh? I think it's been two in his career. I mean, that's that. If if you remove them, which is just pure bad luck, it, it hasn't been too bad because what's happened is obviously over that time he's been out of a, a a squad that's kind of come through together and become really successful. I think he's just found it hard to find a regular place and run back in the team. Matip's Matip, uh, but the same thing happened with Jota. You know, he's had. I know he's had a couple of injuries here and there, but he again kind of picked up one long-term injury that I think um, kind of I don't want to say recency bias but it just makes you maybe think it's a little bit worse than it is with him um, Canate remains to be seen we don't know yet but you, you, Liverpool probably assess it and think one or two other big clubs may not go for these players and they could prove to be quite successful um, and they obviously do their own analysis behind the scenes and deem the risk worth the outlay. So I guess to answer your question, Steve, I think they'll they'll look at it and they'll, they'll weigh up the uh, the probabilities of of these signings being successful. And and clearly they've they've considered each player um, worthy of a transfer. You know whether whether they've always got it right. I, I guess you can make a a fair argument uh, one way or the other with that. But I, I hopefully that answers your question, Steve. Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. So I've got a question from Devon. Uh, no surname included here, and it's very analytical. It's just the place. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the whole of Devon that senses any question. Well, if they are, to be fair, it's a very analytical question. So fair play to Devon. Um, it says, how does Trent's expected threat numbers look compared to others around Europe in the league this season? So yeah, bring an expected threat onto the show there. So, I'm not... In terms of um, this sort of thing, there's various models that look at expected threat type type stuff. Like, for the, for, the, for the uninitiated who are listening, obviously expected goals focuses on shots. That That's all expected goals understands, shots. Expected assists, the person assisting... The shots will will get credited and stuff, but then everything else on the pitch, you know, all of the ball movements on the pitch, deeper areas and stuff won't get credited. It's just like that doesn't happen. So there's more more and more models in the modern day coming out to do with just expected threat, basically, like all over the pitch, any any movements on the pitch. So if, if you think of say for example when Trent switches to play from one side of the pitch to the other. What does that add in terms of a numerical value towards Liverpool's probabilities of scoring type stuff? So I always side with stats bomb data. I think it's probably the best. 
and they've recently started sharing about their model, which is called OBV. That stands for on-ball on value. Um, and he released an article fairly recently for the Premier League so far. For the best players in the league last season, this was um, for on-ball value per 90. And the best in the league by some distance was Jack Grealish, followed by Kevin De Bruyne, followed by Trent Alexander-Arnold. So Trent ranked third last season for on-ball value, expected threat type stuff. Um, fourth, Hamas Rodriguez, Dave. And fifth, Mohamed Salah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's that, that sort of thing. I suppose Trent will always rank highly in those metrics, in my opinion, because of his his role at Liverpool, his, his um, licence to take risks and impact the match. And obviously, we know he's an incredibly good passer of the ball. So, yeah, since since numbers in that in those departments will will always rank really highly, and if you look at stats bomb numbers based on last season, that's certainly the case. Was that per ninety or was it collective? Per ninety, yeah, yeah. Uh, for players who played at least one thousand two hundred minutes. Cool. Um, <clears throat> Ryan Moss asked my question: Where do you both see Salah? Salah's ceiling as a player. Um, he seems like he's turning into both a goal scorer and an assister. Um, I think this is a fairly straightforward answer for me personally, but I will throw it over to you as well, Josh. Um, seeing it does ask uh, what we both think, but I think right now he's at he's at the pinnacle. You know, he's uh, he's he's at the the elite of the elite. Uh, he's it's really difficult to actually make a case for a player who's in better form than him, who's performing better than him uh, across Europe. You could probably spread that across to the world. Uh, but, you know, being honest, uh, for example, I don't watch a lot of South American football, so I couldn't I couldn't comment for sure. But, you know, we, we, we more than often than not agree that uh, Europe has the, has the strongest divisions and he's certainly up there uh, in Europe, probably the best right now. So I, I I think it's fair to make a case that he's at his pinnacle and we're looking at the best ever version of Salah. Uh, so everything that he's producing at the moment, I think, is is a ceiling. But maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Uh, if, if he can produce more than what he's doing right now, then wow, because uh, that would be something something special. That would be kind of legitimately, you'd be looking at you know messy peak levels if he could add more to what he's already producing at the moment. No, I agree. I think when it comes to um, being a scorer and and an assister, I also think he's he's always been that. To be honest, I don't think that's a, a new thing he's added to his game. I think Salah's always been. I mean, he's done. There's a tag attached to him that he's greedy and things. But you know, since he's been at Liverpool, he assists. I'm pretty sure more often than Sadio Mane does, and I think more often than Roberto Firmino does. Even though Firmino has that tag of the assistant, the provider type thing, um, and funny enough, if you look at if you look at Jota for example, one thing I realised the other day, Dave, is uh, since Jota came to Liverpool in the Premier League, he he hasn't actually registered an assist yet. Um, he's just just been scoring goals, just goals, goals, and um, if you look at Salah, I don't, I don't think it's a new development that Salah's become a scorer and an assist. I think he's always been incredibly creative. 
while also putting the ball in the net very, very often. So, yeah, top player. Um, so I've got a question from Ochore Chujo. Apologies if I've butchered that, mate. Um, he said he says he's embarrassed because not long ago he was selling, he was saying sell Salah to buy Haaland and things like this. He said, but he feels like Salah's basically improved at the minute. Can, can can you see if it's true whether his retention is better than ever before? He seems like he never gives the ball away and things. Uh, he believes he's taken up to a new level. So, yeah, if you look at Salah's numbers, just in terms of ball retention, like he asks, there's no dramatic change. Salah kept the ball more often last season than he is this season. Um, and in his first three seasons at Anfield, he gave the ball away. Well, he kept, he kept the ball roughly 74% of the time. So far this season, he's keeping the ball 77% of the time. Not too much, you know. What I will say is the, the, there has been a, a pretty decent boost. Well, I mean, in the early days, this can still be impacted and things, but in terms of providing shots for others and in terms of making passes into the box and in terms of progressing the ball for me to be moving the ball forward. Salah's posting better numbers than any of his previous seasons at Liverpool. But again, it is early. It feels too early for me to be saying things like that. But I think it just captures how he his level of performance is just uh, it, it just seems really, really good at the minute. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly why I think is Sometimes finishing can impact your opinion of a player. I think certainly his first season on Liverpool at Liverpool, his finishing massively impacted the perception of him, and he, he overperformed by about ten goals against expected goals. This season, I don't think his overperformance finishing wise is that is that dramatic, but I just think his all round game he's just contributing a lot. His first touch seems really sharp. He had a full pre season, so he's playing ninety minutes every week. Um, and I think for me, he he looks like he's um tracking back a bit more. <laughs> uh, he's probably not, but I've seen him fill in a few times as a right-back. Um, and maybe it's to do with Liverpool's new little triangle thing that he seems to be forming on the right side of the pitch this season. But yeah, Salah just seems very, very hungry this season and very, you know, lots of desires to prove himself and things like that and to, to bring the Premier League back to Anfield. Um, so yeah, again, top player. Yeah, I'd also add on that that he's um, <clears throat> again short sampled size so far this season, but he's he's not far off um, attempting twice as many dribbles per ninety so far. Um, I think again, if you if you kind of <clears throat> if you kind of watching the game and you're seeing a player just being seem to be a little bit more explosive on the ball, um, you can maybe initially tied that in with the question that was surrounded account around ball retention. But what it might be more a case of is, is Salah just looking to do more, looking to impact the game a little bit more when he when he's got the ball at his feet, you know, running at plays, dribbling past them, trying to progress Liverpool up the pitch. And maybe that's what's led to that question. Uh, seeing a little bit more of that and certainly the numbers would would back that up. Um <clears throat> what I will say mate just just before you move on is uh, I've just had a look at his shot creating actions. Uh, again, that's a stats bomb metric, and it, it is it covers the two offensive actions directly leading to a shot, such as passes, dribbles, and drawing fouls. So basically, you know, involvement in shots 
in the two events of actions around the shop, basically. Um, and Salah, again, is currently experiencing his best numbers. He's currently averaging 5.4 shot-creating actions per 90. Last season, it was 3.4. Season before, it was 3.8. Season before that, it was 4. And season before that, it was 4.7. So he's currently on 5.4 on a per 90 basis, which is, as I said, his best so far. Hmm. Yeah, again, just backs it up, doesn't it? Um, right, on this next one, We've kind of had a couple of people ask a similar question, so I'm just going to combine what they've asked and then I'll answer it. Um, so Dean Pinner, uh, Scotty Allison, initially they ask, hi, any stats comparing the effectiveness of, <laughs> as I put it, Timacass? Uh, <laughs> I've had some stick off that. Um, I might just keep saying it. but yeah, Timiscus, so... I think it was. Oh, Timiscus. I couldn't remember what it said, yeah, but... I've had sounds a little like bit a, over that. Over the last sounds week. like a, a natural spice or something, Tamiscus. Yeah. Let's just leave them then, Yeah, paprika and uh, some Tamiscus on the crisps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but comparing, there's a dead ball delivery versus Robbo's uh, and Millie's. Um, Custer's corners appear to always hit the danger area, whereas the others seem to hit the first man. Great show, by the way. Um, Ahmed, go, Carl. Asked something similar. He said, hi, gents. Love the show and look forward to the episode every week. A specific question on the left-back position. Has Robbo dipped in the last couple of seasons since his peak? And how does... Oh, man. <laughs> he actually gives me a bit of stick. Tamiskas or <laughs> Tamiskas. Uh, <laughs> compare, is there a preferred player for each type of game? Um, okay, so what I'd probably say was, in terms of you know, capturing whose crosses are better. It, it's it's not really, uh, there's not really a black and white way to quantify that. I guess you could argue the closest thing is comparing cross success rates, which you will see, you know, kind of in, in the media, mainstream media. But, you know, my personal opinion, and maybe I'll throw it over to Josh as well in a minute, but I think it's a little bit flawed, that metric. Um, you know, the, the famous saying it takes two to tango. I think the same can be said for the cross and its success. A cross could be good, but without the right movements in the box, it could be chalked off as, as being unsuccessful, but that won't necessarily be at the fault of the provider. That being said, uh, although you, you you can't quantify it in a straightforward way in, in, in numbers, um, I think the fact that you know three people have asked a very similar question would suggest that uh, your eyes aren't lying to you. You know, the, the, you, you don't just rely on numbers alone. You rely on what what you're seeing. You try and com, com, combine the two. And, you know, for people to be saying that, I'm pretty sure we even spoke about it two weeks ago, the differences in the cross and um, there could be something in it. You know, I wouldn't just make sweeping assumptions on this season alone. Uh, I think combined, both players have <laughs> attempted about 20-odd crosses. You know, so it's it's still very early days. Um, but yeah, what what we may be seeing is it's it, maybe he's a little bit stronger than than Robertson is in this particular area, or he has been so far this season. That's one of his uh, one of his strongest traits, and maybe something he has over Robertson, which you know was quite rare because obviously he's a top top player. Well, certainly a top top wing back anyway, Robertson. Yeah, so I've got a question from John Yeomans. He asks, and we get this one fairly often, I'd say. 
basically, can you compare past players like Rush, Owen, and Fowler to current players like Salah, um, and the likes of Hansen and Van Dyke and things like that? So the simple answer is no, not really, because when when those players were around, football numbers were very very basic. Uh, they weren't advanced, so the general answer is no. But in terms of the most basic stat of all, which I suppose is goals, we can do a quick, fun one, I suppose. So I've compared Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen, and Mohamed Salah based purely on their time at Liverpool in the Premier League only. Um, and in the case of Fowler, it's only his first period at Liverpool. And I've looked at goals minus penalties on a per 90 basis. Dave, who do you think's winning, mate? <laughs> uh, is it our man, our current man? It is. It is more yeah, yeah. would be, yeah. Yeah, he's so, Yeah, so in, in, in comparison, yeah. Salah has scored about, well, based on the time of Liverpool in the Premier League, he's averaged 0.61 goals minus penalties per 90. It is close. Michael Owen's right behind him on 0.57 and Robbie Fowler's right behind him on 0.52. So, just put a bit of perspective of how good that still is. Robbie Fowler's 0.52. What that, that works out is a goal every two games. So, you know, that's that's still very, very good. And um, You could argue Salah's playing in a far better side than the, the team Fowler played in particular. Um, but yeah, just I suppose a little fun comparison there that I'm sure many people will will be interested by. But you know, Salah's top and it is quite incredible his level, and he's probably top of the assist as well. Yeah, what's the um, <laughs> do we know the differences in terms of how many games played at all? Yeah, so in terms of should we go with starts or just matches played? Uh, it'd be nice to do starts, but maybe just appearances to keep it more simple for you. Yeah, so appearances over the, the time in question. Yeah. Salah I know is, that'll have a few substitutes in there, sadly. But. Yeah, Salah's 152 appearances. Mm-hmm. Michael Owen, 100, uh, sorry, Michael Owen, 216. And Robbie Fowler, 226. Mm-hmm. So Salah's played about 60, 70 games fewer than uh, Owen and Fowler. Mm-hmm. But his average on a pay 90 basis is higher. Whether it'll come down. Haven't played the same with the games as them, so is, is another question, I suppose. But do you reckon he'll get to that many games? Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm not yeah, sure. It's a tough one, one. It? It'd just be interesting to to compare it. But you know, whether I think he... if he, I think if he signs another contract, he probably would. Yeah, and so he's about what 100 appearances, roughly off now, there or thereabouts. No, he's less than he's about 60, 70. So that's about two seasons. Mm, okay, yeah, that, it'll go to the why. It'll depend what happens with the contract, only. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's have a look anyway. We'll move on. Um, so got Stephen Kinsella uh, with Milner's poor performance and Nico Nico Williams obviously yet to kick on. Should Liverpool look at to miscas? I actually, I'm actually struggling to remember what my joke <laughs> nickname was for. No, um, to, but to miscas. To miscast, okay. Yeah, Simicast is his actual name. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I keep going to say his actual name now. So to miss gas, uh, should we look for a, a, a similar option uh, at right back? So basically, you know, a, a, another version of him, but to play on the other side. Um, I really want to elaborate on this question, but it's it's quite straightforward, and, and that would be a yes. You know, definitely. I think it's it's made Liverpool a lot more stronger in that left side of position. I guess the only issue is, and maybe touch on this a little bit more on a, a, another question coming up, is I feel like in the modern game, although you can't find players as good as Robertson, I think it's easier to find a profile uh, equivalent to Robertson's, whereas Trent is quite unique in that area. There's, I'd actually struggle to name many players like Trent at all anywhere in Europe at the moment. So how do you find that kind of that kind of replacement it's hard um but you know if you if you can find someone um similar level then yeah then yeah you know get, without it i'll get them in yeah i've actually got a similar question from jason drake and he asks who who would i get basically as a deputy for trends and i think it's just elaborating on what you've just said there there's without me going into real detail which i would like to do at some point it is difficult to do uh just in terms of a basic answer because He's so he is very unique, and if you've got a player who can do that from right back, he's probably not going to be willing to sit on the bench, um, unless you get him from quite an obscure area like Liverpool did with Simakas by getting him from from Greece. You know, Liverpool could maybe look in some like Austrian league and things like this. But if you look at just general statistical profile, again using fbref.com, the the most comparable players, most comparable fullback, sorry, to Trent statistically. Are either old or left backs. A lot of them are left backs. Like Angelino's in there, Jordi Alba's in there, Andy Robertson is in there, uh, Rafa Guerrero at Dortmund is in there, Spinozola, who we obviously saw at the Euros, is in there. But like, they're all left backs. Um, Juan Cadrado was in there, who was at Chelsea a few years ago. And there's a lot, there's a fellow called Jonathan Klaus, who is at Lens, but I think is 29 years old. So, there's just generally very few who compare. The biggest comparison, the the, the best link, apparently, according to FBMF, is a, is a lad who's at Inter Milan called Federico De Marco. Um, I'm not personally that aware of him, I'll be honest, but apparently he plays a little bit in midfield and he's left-footed, so he must be must play at left-back when he does play at left-back, yeah, when he does play as a full-back. So, yeah, that's one that I'd like to go into detail with. I'd like to do a full-on study on a few leagues and come out with my own little answer like Simicast, I suppose. But um it's probably gonna to take too long to, to do on this episode. Yeah. This conversation just reminded me of um something that we didn't mention when we were talking about the stats one conference. Uh when they were t- when um Graham was talking about the, the league comparisons and how they kind of how they kind of weight it, you know, for divisions like the Greek League and talked about it actually being a lot easier. Than, uh, than maybe would, we would anticipate it just using European competition um, and how Greek teams tend to perform against, say, English sides uh, and, and, and doing it that way, which was really interesting. But um, just staying on the kind of whole trend subject, um, Suhail Sidat, uh, I hope I pronounced that right, mate. Um, he said, what are your thoughts on Ox being the substitute to Trent at right back? Um this is another thing that 
kind of heard a little bit. I can't remember where this come from. I, I don't know if there was an article in The Athletic. Um, I think got a little bit of traction. Maybe even Callie, I might have talked about it. You know, again, if we were just, you know, if we were talking about the other side, you go, okay, yeah, he's got he's got good pace. Uh, he's got really good stamina. Um, he's good on the ball. Um you know, he's had experience being in kind of wide areas and crossing areas. I think he played there a little bit with Arsenal as well. So I guess it, it it does kind of make some sense. But again, he just doesn't replicate that profile Trent has. Um, but then neither does neither does Milner, does he? Um, and he's played there. So maybe it's something that, that you do tr- try and just accept that you, you're going to have to adjust the setup a little bit uh, and you're not going to get that same penetration. It maybe you maybe have a more traditional wing back kind of performance from him, uh, but it could be an option. Yeah. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I've got a question here from Runa Clevan, which might be Ragnar Clevan, and he spells his name wrong. <laughs> um, but he's got a question. He says, uh, "Which player who is real who is realistic for Liverpool to pick up? Do you think is closest to filling the role of Bobby?" based on numbers and stats. This ties back in with what I said earlier about the question about a striker and things like that at Liverpool. And just because of Firmino's uniqueness type thing, uh, I don't think... I'm not sure Liverpool will chase a like-for-like replacement for Firmino because I think he's just... He's just very... He's unique, as I said, and he he doesn't actually score that often and, and things, so... Liverpool could potentially look for a player who's going to deliver a bit more in terms of goals. Obviously, we know for me, that's not technically a responsibility for Firmino. And Klopp said in the past that you need a team is almost like an orchestra and you need players to play different instruments, basically. But I'm not sure Liverpool will look for another Firmino. Statistically, again, using the same uh, method I've just mentioned before for Trent, apparently, according to the past year, the most, the, the, the most, statistically comparable player to Firmino in Europe's top five leagues is Antoine Griezmann. Um which I would I can see, to be honest. Um second is Gabriel Jesus, funnily enough, who is not gonna it's not gonna happen. Um but there's a there's a lad there's a lad in there from, from Nice called Amin Guri. He used to be at Leon, came through at Leon, very very young he is and I suppose he's roughly of that type, he's he's still only a kid, and I I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool were aware of him and just generally keeping track of him. I'm not sure he's good enough to bring to Liverpool or anything like that, but he does look like a decent player, and he's 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 a player I've thought about flagging on his show, just in terms of like a scouting option who's who's looking good. But he's currently yeah he's 21 years old, and last season for Nice he scored 12, assisted seven. So far this season he scored five, assisted three. And as I said, he's been deemed as a big prospect for a few years now. Um, but I think Liverpool, when it comes to replacing Firmino, I think Liverpool might go down more of a Jonathan David route um, than a statistical clone or whatever of, of Firmino. I think Liverpool might go down more of the route of a, a player who's going to find Ness a bit more while also offering well-rounded traits like Firmino does. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Dan, Dan Salisbury. Um, he, he talks about the similarities between 
Grealish and Jones. Uh, he said very similar in the way they run with the ball, don't you think? Perhaps Jones may follow it his path. Um, yeah, I think I, I can see the comparison. Uh, to maybe what happens a little bit deeper, you know, between that kind of middle and attack and third. Uh, both obviously at different stages of the career. Uh, you know, Grealish is more developed and polished, uh, but he's got, you know, both have got really good technical ability, able to evade pressure. I would probably argue that Grealish is, is better uh, dribbling through, you know, defences and getting himself into the penalty area. You touched on it a little bit before, Josh. You know, I, I read the same article, uh, but even if you look at the more traditional kind of shot creating action metrics, you know, Grealish just seems to top everything, certainly based on last season. So I think he's he's a little bit more prone to to do more damage in the final third. You know, he averages he, certainly last season he averaged about five more touches in the box per ninety, which which is a decent amount. Um, but that being said, you know, on the right path, I don't probably think Jones's ceiling is as high. But in terms of a profile, yeah, I think the similarities, and you know, he could well go on to be a a version of a Grealish in the, in the not so distant future. Hey, one one mate. <laughs> <laughs> the old mute game, eh? Yeah. So I've got a, a, a similar question, I suppose, from Craig Allenson. He says, which players across the big five leagues was Curtis Jones compared to statistically? I actually think I mentioned this a few weeks back, but just in terms of, again, that same method, similar players to Curtis Jones based on the past 365 days, you have... This is midfielders only, of course. You have Bernardo Silva, uh, Kerem Demirbay, who is at Leverkusen, used to be a Hoffenheim. Ilkay Gundogan's in there. Tony Cruz is in there. Luis Alberto, funnily enough, used to be at Liverpool. Nadia Mamiri, Mason Mount, Nicolo Barella, Pedri, and Seco Fofana at Lens. So, again, this is statistical profile only. So, a lot of those players, once you actually watch them, will obviously be very different to Curtis Jones. I think, for example, Tony Cruz in particular, probably Barella as well, Pedri, you could argue. Three players, in my opinion, who are very different to Jones in terms of style. I think Jones is a lot more dynamic, a lot more attacking, a lot less of a conductor than those players. But those are players, I suppose, who statistically, at least across quite dominant main areas look very compatible to, to Curtis Jones but in terms of Bernardo Silva I can see it in terms of Mason Mount I can see it um, probably Demirbay as well and a little bit of Luis Alberto in there but yeah interesting yeah um, Stephen P between Thiago and Keita who's the better playmaker since coming to Liverpool hmm I, I guess yeah, I guess it depends what your definition is of the playmaker is as well. You know, is it is it someone who's a little bit deeper who kind of keeps play ticking over, um, or is it more of an offensive playmaker, aka who creates the most kind of shooting opportunities? I had a quick glance at this, Josh, uh, but it was only a very quick one, and I must be honest, through a mixture of the kind of player he is. Uh, and also was kind of relatively small sample of minutes. I expected to look at uh, Keita's shot-creating actions and see them a lot higher than Thiago's. But 
there isn't really a lot between the two. Um, you know, Cater joins Liverpool time, and you know, it, it should really be a game reiterated. It, the the playing sample is really small, uh, but he's kind of fluctuated between you know, 2.4 and somewhere around 3.5 shot creating actions per 90 across his, uh, across his three seasons. And if you look at uh, Thiago, who obviously accumulated more minutes, certainly in in one campaign than, than Cater has since he's come to the club. Uh, last season, he had a shot creating uh, action per 90 average of 2.96. So very similar between the two. Um, so I guess from that perspective, you'd, you'd say, although different players uh, in that department, very similar. In terms of a more maybe a little bit deeper on the pitch, more traditional kind of playmaker, uh, you, you'd probably see Thiago's better, wouldn't you? I think he's got he's got he's better in pass with the ball, really good vision, uh, can kind of see passes other players can't see, but can also execute them as well. Kate is definitely a better dribbler. Uh, Kate is better carrying the ball through the lines, but in terms of passing through them, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer Thiago personally. Uh, but yeah, you know, a general output, certainly from a shot creating action point of view, uh, a lot of similarities, a lot closer than I thought. Yeah, so I've got a question from Gaddy Simon. He says, Would you be able to give us a view on how the table would look if you consider? points achieved versus the same opponents last year um yeah so thanks to andrew beasley for this uh i'm not sure if he listens but hopefully he does uh so liverpool so far this season again based on the the, the same matches they played last season are seven points better off um for a bit of perspective the only team in the league who are better off by more are Brighton, who are better off by 10 more. Um, that's excluding the, the newly promoted sides. You know, it's difficult to, to judge them. Obviously, Brentford doing really well. But in terms of Liverpool, yeah, seven points better off. City, four points worse off. Chelsea, five points better off. Manchester United, five points worse off. Everton, five points better off. Arsenal, four points worse off. You know, it's a bit of a lots of variance in there, but yeah, generally in terms of Liverpool, um, up there with the best so far, notable improvement compared to last year. That's interesting. That. I uh, I did want to know that, but I didn't quite want to do the legwork on it. You know, <laughs> I'm glad uh, I'm glad Andrew has you know good stuff, nice work. It's uh, yeah, I just didn't fancy it myself, but I'm, I'm glad it's good to know. It's interesting. Um, hi, Josh and Dave. Uh, we say our defence is arguably the best in the league, but why can't we just shut teams out when the game is on the line with a few minutes left? Um, AKA Brentford and Man City games. Um, it probably wouldn't be unfair to say maybe there's a little bit of recency bias there. You know, we, we're early into the season. And I think they're the only two examples. Um and, you know, if you kind of look, Liverpool scored first in five of their seven games so far. Um, they haven't lost any of them, obviously, because uh, they haven't lost all season. But they won four, drew one, which was the City game. You know, City and elite side. Um, 
last season were a little bit of a mess, but if you think of the campaign before, Liverpool were masters of kind of shutting up, shutting up shop and seeing the game through. So I'd be inclined to say maybe um, we just kind of yeah, don't get too carried away with that one at the moment. Um, I didn't. I, sorry, Kawazi. I didn't actually say your name at the start. I do apologise. But yeah, Kawazi. What I'd say is maybe it's there's a little bit of recency bias there. I wouldn't make too many sweeping conclusions too too soon. Uh, I'd probably like to revisit that one maybe um, another seven or eight games in. And if, if it was a recurring theme, then then fine. Maybe Liverpool are going too conservative when they take the lead. You know, starting positions a little bit too deep. Those kind of things that we can maybe look out for over the next few weeks. But for now, uh, I, I think it, the sample size is too small to make any any sweeping judgments. Yeah, I had a question from Moise as well, or Moise, or I'm not sure exactly how you say that one, but it was along the lines of what you've just been saying, Dave. So I think just to save a little bit of time, um, I'll let that answer you know, go, go alongside that one. Um, but I've got a question from Sampo Latahen, Latinan. Um, Incestomoy says, how much are players' individual stats influenced by the team he plays for? And how do you take this into account? Great question. So, yeah, really important question, actually. Um, so he says Curtis Jones, for example, was ranking high amongst midfielders in Europe in many stats. How would Curtis rank in stats if he played for Norwich? For example, so yeah, good question. Um, I think just generally in terms of these types of stats, th- these are obviously event stats. They, that's what we call them. The event stats, stats based on the actions that you perform on the pitch. So obviously, it helps if you have the ball more. Now, dominant teams like Liverpool, City, Chelsea, I suppose have have the ball more often. So you just generally get more opportunities to do more on the ball you've got the opportunity to attack more so and sometimes the way around this you know you can you can adjust you can have possession adjusted stats um that sort of thing or rather than looking at numbers on a pay 90 basis which is maybe a bit unfair for a player like alan st maximum for example because on a pay 90 basis newcastle can tend to get dominated every match so he doesn't get that much of an opportunity to showcase what he can do on a per 90 basis based on minutes so one of the ways in which you can highlight how good St Maximum is is looking at what he does per 100 touches for example so what he does strictly when he's on the ball so every 100 touches he's probably one of the most dangerous players in the league but uh, but per 90 he's probably not because he's not getting the opportunity to do too much Gabriel Jesus is another example of this. Since, since he's been at City, he's been ranked right near the top when it comes to just shots per 90. But how much of that is a product of just Pep Guardiola creating all kinds for him with the system? So, yeah, it's a difficult one. When it comes to Gaze Jones, he's looking at his numbers now. He's in the 86th percentile for passes attempted. For example, he's in the... 88th percentile for touches in the attacking penalty box, I think, compared to other midfielders. Um, expected goals is decent, shots is decent. 
some of them, if he played for Norwich, would come down. Um, but certain other little characteristics maybe wouldn't. For example, he probably would still show up as a keen dribbler. He probably would still show up as a keen progressive carrier of the ball as well. Um, and he he probably still show up as a, a decent attacking player. Um, it's just a case of when it comes to analysing these players and when they're at weaker clubs, you just have to consider how much of his numbers will get a boost, scalable output, we call it, you know, how, how much of a boost he'll get it if, he, if he moves to a better side, basically. So, Dave, yeah. you have no questions left, is that correct? <clears throat> yeah, no, I thought that was a really good question to, unless you've got a couple more, but that was a really good, one, well, one of the last questions to finish on, uh, that's a particular section. Um, I just, can I just add something on that really quickly, because in case you yeah, have yeah, another question, I just think uh, this is where you, you uh, that's that's a good question. This is where you need to use your own football knowledge to kind of contextualise statistics. Because um, I think when when people start first getting getting used to using them, and I say this as someone who you know a few years ago might have might have been guilty of it myself, you're inclined to look at games like you like it's a game of tennis. You know, it's an individual sport, but it isn't. It's a team sport, and you do start realising that a lot of statistics, frankly, are as a consequence of of, of of team structure uh, of tactics and this is why you have got to got to make sure that you try and once you're looking at numbers you're also then considering the context behind it and seeing you know is this is this as a result of the player or you know is there going to be team tactics at play as well here um so it's just definitely something to something to keep in mind and obviously you know most people listen to this will have a really good understanding of football so you know use your own knowledge to to, to add context um, to, to any statistics that you use. Yeah, so final question. I've got one from Al J, and he just says, can you alleviate my concern, Ari, the lack of cover for Salah and Mane leaving in January for the African Cup Nations? So, yeah, this is going to be a difficult one. This I haven't really thought about it too much, but now that it's getting closer, obviously it is a concern. Um, I think there's a, a possibility that Klopp might change formation for this um, because obviously the formation really is based on the it's for the players it's for whatever players you've got available so if he loses his two best attackers you 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 have to you have to adjust accordingly really and I think maybe now that he's got four top quality centre backs Stimacas is, is playing a bit more of a role Robertson's obviously there Trent is going to be there I think there's a potential that he might move towards a back three. Um, I doubt it, but it's, I'm just throwing out there as a possibility given the centre-backs we've now got. Um, Trent and Robbo would then basically have even more attacking licence than they usually would to basically offer to, to compensate what's, what's lost with Salah and Mane off the pitch. And I suppose you could maybe you could maybe have a 5-3-2 type system with a front two of Jota and, and Firmino, maybe. Um Sensing Robertson as wing backs and stuff, but uh, or a four four two again with, with um mind you we don't think we've we'd have the wide players really to do that if Johnson was to play it up front with Firmino I'm not sure he'd play on on the flanks, uh, but yeah it's a difficult one but it's one that Klopp might have to tackle by just changing his formation basically, um so yeah we'll we'll leave the Q and A there but <laughs> we're we're already over the hour. So, and we haven't even touched on the, the preview in the game. So, 
I think very, very quickly, mate. That's <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll maybe add an extra 10 minutes, Max, but what are your thoughts on Watford? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll keep it fairly brief, but this is a, uh, a f- mm. you know, it, it, based on how they perform so far this season, this is a fairly nice fixture to have to come back from the international break from. Um, you know, they've they've only won two games, haven't they? Um, they've they've lost four and underlying numbers so far, again, small sample size, but do kind of paint them as one of the lesser sides in the league. They just sacked the manager. The only thing I would be a little bit cautious of, Josh, is uh the new manager bounce, you know, the infamous new manager bounce, you know, is that are they gonna benefit from that? I think it's always a risk when you play a team who've got a new manager. Which way will it go? Will there be a bit of a feel factor? Will those players have an extra 10, 20% in the locker? Um, that would be a concern for me going into this game. But certainly 11 v 11 performances so far this season, Liverpool should be confident. Yeah, I mean, we know what Claudio Ranieri is generally what like. Past few weeks, Watford have not looked very good at all to me in terms of without the ball in particular. I was looking forward to Liverpool playing them, actually. But uh, I think now I'd expect Vanieri to address that a little bit. They've been playing with a back four all season. I'd expect that to continue, but maybe given Liverpool in town and, and Vanieri's in charge, maybe they'll switch to a back five. Ishmael Assar is obviously a player that Liverpool have to look out for. Last time, well, maybe, maybe not last time. Yeah, I think last time Liverpool were there, we famously lost 3-0. Uh, after the 28-game, 27-game, win streak or, or, or whatever or unbeaten streak in the Premier League the year that we ended up winning it um, so yeah we've got I suppose bad memories there that we need to we need to tackle but in terms of Watford they, they are just roughly what you'd expect they're not outstandingly bad across any area in terms of numbers mind you in terms of shots the, the, they are second bottom but outstandingly bad <laughs> Well, they've taken the same amount of shots as Brentford, though, and we know what happened against Brentford. Mm. <laughs> um, for expected goals, yeah, I mean, the, for expected goals, they think, to be fair. But it, it, defensively, they're, they're just relatively bad, but not absolutely awful and, and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, 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 what are you expecting with this one, Dave? What are, what are we saying, prediction-wise? Um... <laughs> It, this would have been so much easier if um, if we did this, you know, uh, like two weeks ago. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I expect it to be a little bit tougher. You know, I think these international breaks are really ruthless. Um, a lot of players are playing with coming back and not really having much turnaround time before the game. Um, could, be, could be difficult. You know what? I'm going to go with a 1-0 Liverpool. I'm going to say it's a little bit tighter, a little bit of a nothing game, but Liverpool get the win. I'm going to say, I think 2-1 Liverpool. I wouldn't rule out Liverpool conceding in this game without Fabinho and without Alisson. Hmm. Trent is obviously experiencing his first game back after the injury, so yeah, it might be a little bit difficult. It might be one that we have to manage and we have to come through, and I think I'd, I'd, I would take a, a 2-1 now. Maybe end off. Hmm. Um, and then Atletico Madrid. Obviously, we would like to preview it in greater depth. But, yeah, Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. Again, I suppose a team that Liverpool could look at and, and want some form of revenge. Yeah, yeah, this is this is probably, when the draw was made, this is the toughest 
uh, tie, isn't it? You know, I think it in terms of <clears throat> in terms of game, you know, going going over there specifically, uh, trying to get a result. Obviously, they've had a, a draw and a win so far in the group. Um, and yeah, I, I expect this one to be a little bit uh, a little bit tough. You know, that I, I did have a little look at the numbers earlier, and the, they don't seem to give much away. Um, you know, they're not an easy side to create chances against, which is obviously what Liverpool are really good at normally. Um, so I expect this one to be to be Liverpool's toughest game. If Liverpool win this, uh, I think that would be a real statement of intent. You know, we talked about them maybe being up there for Premier League, Champions League. You know, Premier League, you, you, you think they're going to battle, but you're going to battle anyway, sorry. But certainly if they could go and win this, then that's a statement of intent for the Champions League for sure. Yeah, Atletico Madrid don't tend to be that great in the groups for some reason. Um, I think that they're, they're more difficult team to get in the knockout stages. But having said that, they are still not a nice team for Liverpool to face. And if you look at their side, as mentioned in this area, to your day, but I didn't actually go into detail. I've saved it for now. Um, if you look at their team, obviously we know the coast by Diego Simeone. So they are incredibly disciplined. You could, you could throw the word defensive in there and stuff, but if you look at their regular starting lineup, it's incredibly attacking, like in terms of personnel. Like they've got a front two, put it this way, their most recent game or a recent game against Barcelona. Front two of Luis Suarez and Joe Felix. Midfield three of Thomas Lamar, Koke, and Rodrigo De Paul, who they got from Udinese, who's very attacking. And then a back five of Yannick Carrasco, who was a forward. <laughs> Marcos Lorente, who was a midfielder. Stefan Savage, uh, Jose Jimenez, and Mario Hermoso. But in terms of the, the, the personnel in that team, it just it feels like he's fielding loads of forwards, but in a really defensive system that doesn't... It doesn't... Um, you don't suffer as a result of how good the defensive system is, if you know what I mean. So they're yeah. really good defensively, really hard to break down, but they have the individual flair to, to cause you real issues. Yeah, it's basically the, uh, the the power of the defense is in the structure, but then the threat of the attacking players in the, is in the attackers, isn't it? And you've got enough of them on there to to explode and cause damage because I mean, you've even got like Trippy and stuff he plays in, in, in there as well in a kind of similar advanced position also on the... On the right, um, so yeah. Well, on on the bench, they had they had Griezmann, they had a uh, Corrier, um, as you said, Sippy is on the bench. Mm. So they've got a really strong squad. Yeah, so uh, a tough game to to summarize. Really, I think it, you know this would be a tough one, and I'm probably not back in Liverpool to win it. Actually, I'm thinking I'm I'm going to settle on a draw. Yeah, I'm going to set. I'm going to say, I think nil nil. For me in this one, hmm. I don't go for nil nil very often at all, and I wouldn't be surprised if they snuck one. To be honest, hmm. um, but yeah, I think I'm going to say nil. Very tactical game and things, but with it being a group stage match, I have a bit of faith that Atletico Madrid won't turn up as their horrible selves, <laughs> um, and maybe they'll let Liverpool play. Maybe they'll try and play Liverpool, but because if that happens, I think Liverpool will do relatively okay. But if they come as their usual selves, Liverpool just generally under clock don't like facing that sort of team. So, mm. yeah, we'll leave it there anyway. Probably our longest show ever. Um, it's up there. 
yeah, twice up there. So, Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you, mate. Cheers, everyone. And yeah, we'll be back next week to review Watford, review Atletico Madrid, and look ahead to whoever Liverpool have got. <laughs> Can't remember who it is. So yeah, do tune in, and uh, we'll see you then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red Channel.